In 2015, Bill Gates made a prediction. We're not ready for the next epidemic. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not Well, Gates was right. And since the coronavirus emerged, Gates has pledged more than a billion dollars to vaccine development. And 100 million of that is earmarked for COVID vaccines. Wired editor-at-large Stephen Levy has been reporting on Bill Gates for almost 40 years. Today, you'll hear their latest conversation, which has been edited for length. They talk about everything from the U.S. response to the coronavirus to the big tech antitrust hearings. And yes, they talk about TikTok. This is Get Wired, and I'm your host, Lauren Good. And now, Stephen Levy with Bill Gates. Are you disappointed with the performance in the United States now that what you warned us against has come about? Yeah, there's three time periods, uh, all of which have disappointments. There's 2015 until the this particular uh, pandemic hit. Uh, and there, if we had built up the diagnostic and therapeutic and vaccine platforms, and if we'd done the germ simulations to understand what the key steps were, that we'd be dramatically better off. Then there's the time period, the first few months of the pandemic, February, March, where the U.S. actually made it harder for the commercial testing companies to get their tests approved. And the CDC had this very low volume test that didn't work at first. And they weren't letting people test. And then there's after the first few months where it's very clear that prioritizing the testing and getting the test results back quickly, that's very important. And eventually we figure out about masks. So in all three phases, you know, countries could have done better. Now, so you're disappointed, but are you surprised? I'm surprised at the U.S. situation because the, the smartest people on epidemiology in the world by a lot are the CDC. You know, they led smallpox eradication. They're our foundation's partner on polio eradication. And believe me, they are very, very good. So I would have expected them, A, to do better because they actually did make some mistakes. And then they haven't been the face of the epidemic where they're trained to communicate and, you know, not try to panic people, but get people to take things seriously. They basically uh, been muzzled since the beginning. Uh, you know, you just haven't seen that CDC presence. We called the CDC, but they told us we had to talk to the White House a bunch of times and to the point where now they just they say, look, we're doing a great job on testing. We don't want to talk to you. They're not interested. Do you think it's the agencies that, that, that fell down or just the leadership at the, at the top, you know, the White House? The White House, you know, didn't allow CDC to do its job after March. But there was a window there where they were engaged and had some visibility. And so the variance between the U.S. and other countries isn't that first period. It's the subsequent period, the messages, the opening up, the leadership on masks, those things which are not CDC's fault. Because, you know, if you read what they're saying, but 
very few people are. They said not to open back up. They've said that leadership has to be a model of face mask usage. Uh, so I think they have done a good job since April, but we haven't had the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I you go to your COVID-19 page of the foundation, and in big words, it says the optimist. I mean, at this point, are you, are you optimistic? Yes. The, you have to admit there's been trillions of dollars of economic damage done, you know, a lot of deaths. Uh, but the innovation pipeline on scaling up diagnostics, new therapeutics, on vaccines is actually quite impressive. And whenever we get this done, we will have lost many years in malaria and polio and HIV and the indebtedness of countries of all sizes and instability. So you can say it'll take you years beyond that before you'd even get back to where you were at the start of 2020. So this is a huge setback. It's not World War I or World War II but it's in that order of magnitude as a negative shock to the system. It's because of innovation that you don't have to contemplate an even sadder statement, which is this thing will be raging for five years until it, you know, natural immunity is our only hope. Are you concerned that in our rush to get a vaccine, we're going to approve something that isn't safe and effective. We're trying to do this in, re- in record time. And there's a lot of pressure. There might even be pressure to do this before the election. Yeah. So, so, you know, in China, they're moving full speed ahead. In Russia, they're moving full speed ahead. I bet there'll be some of these vaccines that will get out to lots of patients without the, the full regulatory review somewhere in the world. The FDA, to their credit, at least so far, stuck to requiring proof of efficacy. So we probably need three or four months, no matter what, of phase three data just to look for side effects. You know, FDA is very good at what they do. uh, And so far, they behaved very professionally, despite the political pressure. The irony, you know, this is a president who is a vaccine skeptic. And, you know, every meeting I have with him, he was... Like, hey, I don't know about vaccines. Uh, Anyway, there was a meeting where Francis Collins, Tony Fauci, and I had to meet. And so, you know, when we we would say, but wait a minute, that's not real data. They'd say, look, Trump told you you have to sit and listen, so just shut up and listen. Anyway, it was quite a a thing. What, What goes through your head when you're in a meeting like that? And you're in a meeting with the president of the United States, his top experts are saying, Bill, I know you, you're not going to like what you hear, but like keep your mouth shut? That was a bit strange. I haven't met directly with the president since March of 2018. I made it clear I'm glad to talk to him about the epidemic anytime. And I have talked to Pence, I've talked to Mnuchin, Pompeo, uh, particularly on this issue, is the U.S. going to show up in terms of providing money to procure the vaccine for the developing countries, where there have been lots of meetings and we haven't been able to get the U.S. to show up. And now it's very important to be able to tell the vaccine companies to build these extra factories for the billions of doses, that there is procurement money to buy those. And so in this supplemental bill, I'm calling everyone I can to get $4 billion through Gavi for vaccines and $4 billion through Global Fund for Therapeutics. And Yeah, Gavi is the alliance to help get the vaccine to the poorer countries. Exactly. And so, you know, that's less than 1% to the bill. But in terms of saving lives, 
getting us back to normal and strategic leadership, that under 1% is by far the most important thing if we can get it in there. You know, there's still room for U.S. leadership here because the U.S. is funding R&D, but we've managed to come off as only caring about ourselves because we only fund factories for the U.S. and we control all that capacity. Whereas if we give money for the developing countries, we'll show, yes, R&D is to help us, but it's also to help the world. Speaking of therapeutics, you know, what, what are you looking at as, the, as emerging as the most effective treatment once people have the disease? Well, remdesivir has an effect. Sadly, the trials in the U.S. have been so chaotic, the actual proven effect is kind of small. Potentially, the effect is much larger than that. There are two other antivirals besides remdesivir. The other two antivirals are orally available, so uh, they're a little bit easier to use. And those could be approved within probably three months. If those work as well as we think, they could be a you know, 70, 80% plus reduction in the death rate. So if you were in the hospital and, you know, uh, you have the disease and, you know, you're looking over the doctor's shoulder, what are you going to tell them to give you? Well, remdesivir uh, and the supply of that is going up. And in the U.S., it'll be quite available over the next few months. Dexamethasone, which is actually fairly cheap, drug. That's for late-stage disease. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to have trouble paying for it, Bill, so you could ask for anything. Well, I don't want special treatment either, so, uh, you know, that's that's a tricky thing. Those other antivirals, uh, you know, are two to three months away. The antibodies are two to three months away. You know, already, just because we know to use the ventilator less, we know to check your pulse ox, and if it drops to put you on oxygen, even before you, you feel like you don't get enough oxygen, we put you in the prone position. We have about a factor of two improvement in hospital outcomes already, and that's with just remdesivir and dexamethasone. And, and so these other things will, will be additive to that. That's Wired's editor-at-large, Stephen Levy, interviewing Bill Gates. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to our special interview with Bill Gates. At this point in the discussion, Wired editor-at-large Stephen Levy talks to Gates about coronavirus testing and how many people aren't receiving their test results quickly enough to make informed decisions around their health. Here, Gates says that part of the problem is the payment system, that testing labs get paid the same for their work regardless of whether results come back in two days or two weeks. Well, that's just stupidity. That is, if you reimburse and you don't care how late the date is and you reimburse at the same level, of course they're going to take every customer because they're making ridiculous money and it's mostly rich people who are getting access to that. You have to have the reimbursement system pay a little bit extra for 24 hours, pay normal for 48 hours and pay nothing. And they'll fix it overnight. Now, you still should have prioritization of inner city and uh, nursing homes and things like that, which a CDC website that we proposed to them early on would just take care of that. But all they have to do is change the reimbursement system. And the fact that the majority of all U.S. tests are completely garbage wasted, uh, you know, they'll 
clear the cues and only take in things that they can process quickly uh, because it's a screw job to, to get late results. The federal level sets that reimbursement system, and when we tell them to change it, they say, as far as we can tell, we're just doing a great job. We're just, it's amazing. I mean, the fact that here we are, this is August. We're the only country in the world that we waste the most money on tests, you know, fix the reimbursement, set up the CDC website. But I've been on that kick and, you know, people are tired of listening to me. Here, the conversation turned to the rise of anti-science sentiment and what this means during a pandemic. Gates also talked about how misinformation online plays a big role in this. Part of this misinformation, which you may have heard about, involves conspiracy theories. Some people seem to believe that Gates is helping fund vaccines so he can implant microchips in vaccine recipients. We've heard this earlier in, in terms of the criticism of the UN and vaccines, but I'm curious to know what you think of the wave of anti-science that's afoot there. Maybe there was always a lot of people who didn't buy science or were suspicious of it, but it seems it's, it's more public and you know, uh, people are prouder. They don't, they're proud not to wear masks. They you know, think you are like, kind of like some demon putting implants in them. Um, they're almost like fighting the reality of, 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 of COVID. Yeah, well, strangely, I'm involved in almost everything that anti-science is fighting. I'm involved with climate change, GMOs, and vaccines. And, you know, the irony that it's digital social media that allows this kind of titillating, oversimplistic explanation of, okay, there's just an evil person, and that explains all of this. It's digital media that allows that to be uh, spread around, you know, so I'm a little bit at odds with the way that these conspiracy theories, many of which are anti-vaccine things that will prevent people from being as willing to take the vaccine when they should once it's really been tested. You know, pandemics were going to make people panic and look for simple explanations. So the fact that it's gone up somewhat is okay. The fact that you know, when we give money for vaccines, give literally tens of billions for vaccines to save lives, then people turn around and say, no, we're trying to make money and we're trying to end lives. That's kind of a wild inversion of what our values are and what our track record is. And of course, Stephen and Gates discuss TikTok, an app owned by Chinese company ByteDance. And that's because at the time of this taping, Microsoft is in talks to buy large parts of TikTok's business. It's a move meant to ease concerns that during a time of growing tensions between China and the U.S., this hugely popular app could possibly pose a national security threat. You know, well, as the technology advisor to Microsoft, I think you could look forward in a few months to fighting this yourself when you have TikTok. Yeah, my, my critique of dance moves will be fantastically value-added for them. Uh, I'm kidding. You're, you're right. Who knows what's going to happen with that deal? But uh, yes, it, it's, it's a poison chalice. Being big in the social media business is no uh, simple game. Right. Well, I mean, are you, are you a little wary of, of Microsoft getting into, into that game? I mean, this may say, sound self-serving, but I think 
that game being more competitive is probably a good thing. So having Trump kill off the only competitor, uh, it's pretty bizarre. Um, do you feel that, you know, it would be a, like a, a fair and square way to get TikTok considering, you know, I mean, do you understand what rule or, you know, regulation he's invoking to be able to, you know, demand, have a sale and then ask for a cut of it? Well, the cut thing, that's, you know, doubly strange. Uh, I agree that what principle is this proceeding on? That's singly strange. But, you know, the the idea that, anyway, Microsoft will have to deal with all of that. Uh, I'm, you know, Satya, Brad Smith, they'll, uh, you know, be on the hot seat, but they're, you know, amazing people who I trust to think through all these these different things. So let me, let me ask you, we've been dancing around, you know, the, uh, like the White House and the impact of it. I'm kind of curious. You, you know, uh, at least until now, have been very cautious to stay away from the political arena. You want to do your work, work with whoever is running the country, whoever's doing things in the world. But you see what's happened to the causes you care most about, public health and climate change. And really, if you took every penny you had and put it to climate change, it wouldn't have the impact of the United States supporting climate change or doing nothing about it or you know, making things worse. Do you, are you reconsidering where you are in terms of putting your efforts on political change because of that? Well, there's a lot of things about that. The foundation needs to be bipartisan. That is, we need to be expert in global health, our U.S. education, the areas we focus on. And whoever gets elected in the U.S., we're going to want to work with them and based on the expertise we have. You know, I hope on climate change, at least aspects of it, including innovation, become more bipartisan. Um, You know, so the foundation has to stay neutral. We do care a lot about competence and, you know, voters should, as well as whatever their political views is, you know, hopefully they'll take into account how is this administration done at picking competent people, you know, and and should that weigh into their vote. But, you know, there's going to be plenty of money on both sides of this election, and I don't like diverting money to political things. You know, so even though, you know, the pandemic has made it pretty clear uh, we should expect better, there's other people who will put their time into the campaigning piece. If Donald Trump is reelected, you wouldn't say, wow, could I have done more to get someone about these causes I care most about? You know, when it comes to elections, no, I don't think the person I want to win will always be the one that wins. And I... You know, the voters, there's a broad set of voters who are weighing things that I'm not expert in. You know, are they mad at the elite? You know, is it okay to be mad at the elite? Are there things that the elite ought to take out of that and try and do better? But, but no, my regrets will be more about, you know, was our malaria strategy good? My climate change innovation message, did that get through to both parties? Stephen also asked Gates about the recent antitrust hearings. 
A couple weeks ago, the CEOs of Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon faced questions from a congressional subcommittee about potentially anti-competitive practices. While Microsoft wasn't a part of that hearing, more than 20 years ago, the company had its own antitrust saga. So did you have some, changing the subject a little, some deja vu last week when those tech CEOs testified remotely before Congress? Yeah, I mean, I, I got a whole committee attacking me, and they had four at a time. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, what's the Congress coming to? If you want to give a guy a hard time, give him at least a whole day that he has to sit there on the hot seat by himself. I mean, it was so such a sweet thing, and they didn't even have to get on a plane. Gosh, uh, what are we coming to? Anyway, I mean, yes, it was definitely deja vu for my Senate uh, grilling. But so do you think that the antitrust concerns the that legislators and regulators have now are the same, basically, that when Microsoft was un, under the gun? Or is the landscape changed now? Well, antitrust has never been a super pure field where you have certain abstract principles that are independent of industries and how those industries develop. So a lot of antitrust laws about Hollywood, about owning theaters and block booking arose. A lot of antitrust rules about railroads arose. So the idea that as these tech companies, you know, threaten to dominate all of retail, the question of should they be able to have their own brand merchandise? Should their logistics be separable, available, or, you know, so that other people can use it? Or uh, can it be just bundled and only available under one website brand? There are very legitimate industry structural issues where causing horizontal and vertical competition uh, can net be good for consumers. You know, what should be allowed in terms of acquisition? That's a valid thing. Overall, my general view is that even without antitrust rules, tech does tend to be quite competitive. Uh, and even though in the short run, you don't think it's going to dislodge people, it, there will be changes that will uh, you know, keep bringing prices down there. But it, you know, the discussions are, there are a lot of valid issues. And if you're super successful, the pleasure of going in front of the Congress you know, comes with the, the territory. So tell me how you're getting through all of this. How's your life changed living under the pandemic? Well, I used to travel a lot, you know, and so if I wanted to see President Macron and say, hey, give money for the coronavirus vaccine, you know, to really show I'm serious, you go there. You know, when Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, you go there and sit and talk to them. And so, uh, you know, in a way, I'm able to get a lot done. You know, I'm talking to political government leaders and the pharmaceutical people and the scientists, and it's actually been quite efficient. When we actually told the foundation employees, and at the Microsoft decision was being made at the same time, we told all these employees not to come into the office. I thought the loss of productivity actually would be quite a bit higher than it has been. Overall, the productivity panel for office work, including software engineering, has been way less than I would have expected. So, you know, my kids are more home than I thought they would be, which at least for me is a nice thing. Uh, less trips. You know, I'm, I'm microwaving more food uh, than, and I'm getting 
you know, fairly good at it. Uh, so, you know, relative to people who have got a small house with lots of kids, don't have a good internet connection, you know, the pandemic sadly is less painful for those who are better off before the pandemic. You know, so there've been plus a lot of pluses to go with the minuses. Do you have a go-to mask you use? No, I use a pretty, you know, ugly looking, normal, you know, mask. I, I change it, you know, every day, but, uh, you know, maybe I should get a designer mask or something creative, but I, I just use the surgical sort of looking mask. Well, this has been great, Bill, and, you know, uh, I really appreciate your time, as always. It's, it's great to catch up. And let's just end it on, on, on a note. When, when do you anticipate normal? Uh, sometime by the end of 2021 for the rich countries and by the end of 2022 for the world at large. I mean, but, but will it be the normal we knew before? Well, in the sense that you won't have to worry about dying of COVID Yes, in the sense that at least 10 years of progress in forcing people to do things a digital way will have happened in a two-year period. And so telemedicine will be greatly advanced, e-commerce, you know, how we innovate in the Teams platform for, for meetings so you can take your notes and look back at what was said, you know, that's going to be very, very different. So people will rethink commercial office space. They'll rethink, you know, will business travel be down 20% or 50%? I think it's going to be in that range. Will office space needs be down, you know, 20% or 30%? I see online learning that there's a ton of innovation that now this creates the critical mass to get done. Uh, Some new horizons will have opened up. So, it, it will be somewhat different. Well, thanks very much, Bill. Stay safe. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for listening to this special episode featuring Wired's editor-at-large, Stephen Levy, in conversation with Bill Gates. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lauren Good. This episode is reported by Wired editor-at-large, Stephen Levy. You can find him on Twitter, at Stephen Levy. And also, sign up for his new newsletter, Plain Text. Special thanks to Bill Gates, philanthropist and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for joining us on this week's show. This episode was produced by senior producer Liz Mack and Ryan Kailoff, with additional production help from our assistant producers, Alex Jerome and Ben Montoya, who also scored this episode. Megan Greenwell, the editor of Wire.com, is our story editor. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is our site director. Wired's editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson, and Julie Shen oversees our audio initiatives. Mixing was done by Hannes Brown. Additional sound design by Ben Montoya. And theme music by Allison Leighton-Brown. You can find us on wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And there's more info in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.